Welcome to Where's the Nuance with Tara Joy and myself, El Nino. In a world of black and white thinking, we're here to introduce a little color and pull back the dogmatic ideologies that stand in the way of truth. I love science. I just think it's incredibly pretentious and has claimed too much. Its methods are great. Its constipated conservatism is maddening. You must unlearn what you have. We can fight endlessly on the supposition that there are good guys and bad guys. When we fight on that supposition, there is no possibility of compromise. Because we all step in shit from time to time. We hit roadblocks, we fuck up, we get fucked, we get sick, we don't get what we want. We cross thousands of could-have-done-betters and wish that wouldn't have happened in life. Stepping in shit is inevitable. So let's either see it as good luck or figure out how to do it less often. I want to talk about psychedelics and not just in a broad intellectual discourse type of way, but how I found them, the role in what I would describe as cataclysmic events in my life and their shortfalls in a culture that recreates itself quite elegantly. Okay, let me just start with a little backdrop. The new psychedelic age among the young culture has borne a class of wide-eyed, hippie-minded consumers. The truth is, it's easy to find individual mystical experiences that in their magnetic beauty call upon the depth of our being to rise, to reawaken, to reimagine our real our relationship with the self, other, nature, and so forth. But the difficulty evidently lies in crossing the bridge of personal psychedelic experience and awakening towards the cultural and collective change that evades our current consumer culture. Look, so the initial backdrop of the psychedelic culture lies in the famous psychedelic renaissance of the 60s, whereby the American youth were introduced to the drugs like LSD, mescaline, and peyote, but mostly LSD, and radical values like love and peace began to drive large swaths of people to drive across the country and form communes or renounce the Vietnam War through protest, challenge the mainstream narratives of profit, greed, materialism, and consumerism. This cultural shift was more like a cultural fart. It definitely made an impression in the room, but it didn't stick around long enough, you know, for anyone to really notice. However, Thanks to the minds like Timothy Leary, Ram Dass, Terence McKenna, Aldous Huxley, Alan Watts, and more, the spark of the 60s wasn't totally lost, but found its light in the intellectual work of these modern mystics. Aldous Huxley, for instance, was a brilliant novelist and thinker who praised masculine for its abilities to help the intellectual let go of the world of language and symbols that we can become beholden to. Huxley wrote books like The Island and Brave New World, the likes of which challenged the ideas of where our society is headed, what it might be, what it could be, and what our trajectory might cost us. And they had spiritual depth and care towards the human condition, while maintaining you know, a critical eye towards the culture of consumerism, capitalism, and greed. If my current understanding of culture is not totally biased, echo-chambered, and misguided, I would say that a lot of what has led us to the new, way, new Age wave of psychedelics wasn't these great minds and teachers left over from the initial psychedelic renaissance, but rather ordinary average Joes, like Joe Rogan, whose podcast probably catapulted magic mushrooms, also known as psilocybin mushrooms, into the mainstream consciousness. Now look, I have to recognize one aspect of my life that is inherently contextually driven, and that's the fact that I grew up in Western Canada, specifically... Vancouver, Canada, which is home to the 
an abundance of psilocybin mushrooms and a residue of hippie culture that made BC famous for its BC bud and chill West Coast lifestyle. Now, that specific culture and environment made finding magic mushrooms rather easy, even with their criminalized status in the eyes of the law. BC had been known for very minor policing of substances like marijuana and psilocybin mushrooms. I mean, hell, I never even went to juvie or anything really harsh when I had my minor run-ins with police officers, you know, when I got caught smoking weed behind the mall, or even when my friend, who was a dealer, got his car searched, a car that I'm certain had enough weed in it to be considered intent to sell. Instead, the cops had us turned around while they searched and my knees buckled. Then they gave us a warning for the smoking, walked away, and when we got back to the car, we realized those crafty sons of bitches had pinched the weed, but they'd also let us go without any real repercussions. I mean, for me anyways, my buddy did lose a lot of weed. I, I guess what I'm trying to say and highlight is the fact that I never intuitively believed that weed or psychedelics were that bad, considering even the law seemed to be uninterested in penalizing us for it. So by the time I heard a guy like Joe Rogan defending marijuana use and criticizing government, uh, government officials, you know, who were preaching health and safety while looking like overinflated carnival balloons, I was not only open to listening, but damn, I was excited to have someone on my side. See, the thing is, in my experiences, even the most rational minds were trapped by dogma and laws. For instance, in my one true punishment outside of my home, I was caught with weed at a school event. Yeah, I know. I was a bad, bad nino. I was sentenced to CATS, Community Assessment and Treatment Services. It was about as dull as you can imagine. But considering my school sent me there as an alternative to a suspension that would have been on my official record, I took it in stride. The absurdity wasn't totally lost on me. Here I was, an A-minus student who was in the school plays, played football, practiced Muay Thai kickboxing, enjoyed hiking with his family, reading, and getting high as a kite on the weekends, was sitting in the same room as some poor kid who came from a broken home who'd show up to his grade 10 classes drunk or high because he was seeking an escape from his pain. I felt like a fraud trying to relate to this guy. I just like getting high and laughing more than I thought I ever could. Anyways, the Good Samaritan leading the program had the task of educating us about the substances we were caught using and outlining the risks, dangers, and so forth. I have to hand it to the program. It was up to date with the leading research and it didn't flaunt mindless propaganda of what could happen or use slippery slope fallacies to instill fear. But arming the 17-year-old me, who already couldn't stand arbitrary authority and rules, with the knowledge that marijuana was an extremely low-risk substance, whose only real danger was posed towards those with a family history of schizophrenia and who were daily smokers of cannabis, of which I was neither, was exactly what I needed to further become the outspoken supporter of weed I am today. By the third day of watching these videos on alcohol and marijuana, I felt better equipped to argue with my parents than ever before. The information and dangers of alcohol were endless. I won't get into it here, but pretty much terrible for mental health, linked to cancer, extremely addictive, huge gateway to hard substances, increases violent tendencies, etc., etc. So I asked the guy leading the program something along the lines of, so from all the information you've presented, when it comes to weed, if you don't smoke it every day, you don't have a history of schizophrenia or psychosis, and are over the age of 18, there's nothing wrong with it. He quickly responded, well, well no, it's against the law. <laughs> and that was it. 
It was clear in my life now at 17 years old that the decisions by which the governing body of the country I lived in, Canada, had very little to do with the facts and truth about health and safety, but rather was founded on arbitrary laws put in place by some people I could give a fuck about's opinion of how I lived in my life. But it was obvious that even well-educated adults with all the knowledge at their disposal about the relative safety of substances like marijuana still felt beholden to their government laws. Well, because apparently some group of people who I never voted for made laws based on false premises decades ago are still valid. <laughs> See, I was free. Mentally, anyways, I stopped looking at laws around drugs as any indication of whether or not I should try them. And my use of weed became something I was only careful in of that I feared the punishment of my parents. But I had no fear regarding my health and safety. Look, okay, I know I said I wanted to talk about psychedelics, but weed is technically a hallucinogen, so, so I thought I should bring it up briefly. Anyways, back to the magic. Okay, so hearing a guy like Joe Rogan talk about the wonders of psychedelic substances like DMT and magic mushrooms was enough for me to be willing to try them, at least mushrooms. Now, I want to be careful not to put the onus of my use of psychedelic substances on anyone else because I would have gotten to them one way or the other. I just wasn't much of a hippie when I was younger, not enough to be called to the mushrooms by the whimsical language of Terence McKenna or the hippies of yonder. But a guy who worked in media like I wanted to, who had a background in martial arts that I currently practice, and was extremely fit and open-minded was exactly the kind of guy I was willing to listen to. I first tried mushrooms when I was 16 years old. My friend who'd already ventured into the world of mycelium got it for a group of us, let's say six of us. Four of us took it, two of us trips at, aka they were the sober connections that ground us back to reality if need be. I did not trip it, I just tripped. <laughs> and what an adventure it was. Okay, look, now even at 16, I was a curious intellectual, and by this I just mean that I really did like to think things through. Especially if it was going to be using magic mushrooms, an illicit substance that causes visual and auditory hallucinations for four to six hours and was a class A substance, very illegal. So I had an idea of what to expect, what not to do, what to do, where to be, where not to be, and how much to do. For a true experience, they recommend two and a half grams of dried psilocybin. So we weighed the mushrooms on a scale, headed out to Stanley Park in our hometown of Vancouver, and began the mystical mushroom voyage. Honestly, the first hour I was just caught in that youthful, giddy anticipation of what was to come. I kept thinking everything was an indication that it was happening. I was tripping. Truthfully, the only real sign that it had begun was kind of an awful stomach ache that hit around an hour and a half after ingesting the mushrooms, and my hands started sweating profusely, more than normal. It was at that moment that I began to see another visual layer of light on my hands and my surroundings. It seemed as if the light that was normally sitting on physical objects was now lifted just ever slightly off of them, creating a new realm of visual depth and intensity in the world around me. Okay, now around two and a half hours into the experience, I began peaking, as they say, aka I was at the height of the visual hallucination's intensity. At this time, I felt compelled to walk alone for a moment and stop atop a wooden bridge in the park, and I felt my sense of self slowly take a back seat as I stared down to the dust that sat eagerly on the bridge. Just then, the wind swept up the dust and I saw it breathe life into the trees around me, and I had what I've always simply said was 
a conversation with Mother Nature, in which some invisible energy conveyed to me telepathically the idea that I had been blind, or rather I had become blind to the beauty that surrounded me every day, especially in a place like British Columbia, and I began to cry. It was this overwhelming joy, a sense of oneness, awakening to my reality, and I gained this appreciation that I had once had as a kid, but lost along the way. It, it was incredible, ecstasy, overwhelming, but utterly awe-inspiring. When my friend Mo, who was trip-sitting, asked what was up, I told him verbatim, I just spoke with Mother Nature, and damn, I just didn't realize I hadn't seen all this before, pointing at the greenery around me. He just smiled and said, nice. Again, he was sober, so he had simply witnessed me stare at a bridge and then cry triumphantly. I got very hungry shortly after, and I was still riding in ecstasy these new eyes I'd gained, and my capricious confidence believed I could venture into the city and grab a snack from 7-Eleven without worry. But that confidence quickly waned. See, if you're not comfortable in the psychedelic state, being around a mass of people you don't know is an incredible way to give yourself a panic attack. See, I stood in 7-Eleven, my legs were shaking as my debit card was declined as I tried to buy an Oreo ice cream sandwich, and that rejection felt so intense, instead of simply just, you know, moving some money from one of my accounts to the other just for a split second, I instead panicked, threw the sandwich on the counter, and ran out of the store as if I just held them up at gunpoint and was making off with a million dollars. My friend chased me down to the beach, emphatically asked me what the hell that was about, and I simply said bad vibes, dude. And I held up my iPhone 4 into my ear as it played Grateful Dead's A Box of Rain until the bad vibes turned to good. <laughs> Look, shortly after that panic settled, rather, the mushrooms had me reflecting on all the relationships of my life. And as the hallucinogenic effects of the mushrooms dissipated, they made way for newfound ways of thinking. I had never quite contemplated before. Or had access to. Look, regardless of the mechanics, I found clarity. It was in that subtle contemplation that I realized I was in love, not just with nature, but with a girl. With the girl I was dating, not dating. She didn't like labels. What is it like to realize you've fallen in love for the first time? To be given permission to feel things you held behind a hardened exterior? Well, it was exciting beyond belief. My instinct was to rush to my phone, but my gut told me that's the kind of thing you should tell them in person. So instead, I told my friend Mo. I told him I had just realized I loved her, and from what I remember, he looked almost as happy as me. We shared in the excitement of these newfound realizations and emotions, and it finally crept up on me that this was the point of mushrooms. At least, this was my reason to do mushrooms. They aided and abetted love. They woke you up from a slumber of ignorance. They slapped you in the face and yelled, what the fuck are you doing with yourself? Stop treating this gift of life like a burden. And that was my first experience with the psychedelic realm. It wasn't a place I went to to escape. It was the place I went to to learn. Somehow this fungal plant was endowed with magical properties that allowed neural pathways in my brain that normally lay ignorant to one another to finally communicate. And damn... Not only is communication the key to a healthy relationship with another person, it is also the key to a better relationship with yourself. And somehow magic mushrooms helped me communicate with myself more clearly and deeply. I was standing on the precipice of an ancient magic, a shamanic tool, nature's gift, the fungal wisdom of psilocybin, 
but I was also a 16-year-old kid who feared getting caught doing illegal substances by my parents more than, well, anything. At least death was final. Whatever punishment my parents could imagine, I somehow believed it could be worse. So psychedelics were always relegated to the shadows of my youthful existence. I could never openly admit to using them or discuss the visions, the lessons, not with anyone except my core group of friends, the psychonauts. Psychonauts is a term to describe those who voluntarily immerse themselves in altered states of consciousness to explore the accompanying experiences. We had begun to explore the depths of degrees of consciousness, but in secret. And what I thought was a sort of attempt to grasp at the existential questions that plagued me, even back then. Like, what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? Is God real? Does he care if I masturbate? Yes, I know. Profound questions. It wasn't until I was 18 years old that I had begun to lay out my own pillars for a successful psychedelic experience. By successful, I think I just meant safe, as in how can I push my consciousness to unknown like states without inducing a panic attack? My pillars were as follows. Number one, the physical environment. If you were a beginner to the psychonautic adventures, I'd recommend a visually stimulating environment. As the senses are tweaked and dialed up to a million, it helps to keep the experience somewhat external and consistently engaged in a beautiful dance between self and other and stimuli. If you were a more experienced user and wanted to dive into the abyss of self, I'd say remove the stimuli, stay in your room, somewhere safe and trusted. Either way, you didn't want to be in an environment that was overstimulating, like a public mall, a city sprawl. See, an ideal environment would be your own home or a forest you were quite familiar with. Number two, the people you're with. See, I recommend a trip sitter, a grounder, as I called them, someone who ideally is familiar with altered states of consciousness, who could be sober during the time, or at least not on a psychedelic drug, that could serve as a grounding being if suddenly you get the overwhelming sense that you're dying. They might assure you you're in fact not dying and help you breathe past that sentiment. And third, and lastly, the most important pillar of a successful psychedelic experience is mindset or intention. See, if you're seeking an escape, I'd say go on vacation. Psychedelics will reveal you to yourself. So if there's emotions you're hiding from or pain that you're ignoring, these experiences create opportunity for confrontation. In that lies a power, but a warning to those who are so hidden from themselves, they're quick to label the experience a bad trip because they were so uncomfortable, they just decided to fight the mushrooms and resist the entire way through. Yeah, of course, that's a recipe for disaster. But if you are curious, perhaps there's a specific question you want answered, or maybe you just have a looming sense that there's more to what you're currently living. Perhaps there's a blockage, but you just can't quite identify it. Well, then these are great reasons to seek wisdom and the billion-year-old intelligence of fungi. For example, a couple of years ago, I was dating this wonderful firecracker of a woman. Let's call her Sam. But it seemed that love was at a blockage. I, I couldn't understand why I didn't feel what I so evidently should feel for someone as amazing as her. With the, with the intention of self-discovery, I took just a small amount, a gram and a half of mushrooms. And by the end of the five-hour self-reflective dancing, journaling, meditating, piano playing, singing, and staring, it came to me. The wisdom of the mushroom provided. And it told me I was looking out the window. Metaphorically speaking, of course, it seemed like ever since my first love, I had a habit of stay, staying out of the driver's seat of my own relationships. 
This meant that I was jumping into relationships, giving just enough of me and my past and my trauma to form a bond and, you know, build some intimacy. But I wasn't really giving enough of my current self or presence. This realization was given to me in the literal form of a vision. I saw myself as a little kid looking out the window like back when my parents used to drive around doing errands and I had no idea where we were going and I just look out the window and daydream, counting streetlights and chasing dreams. Now in my present moment, I was kind of doing the same thing, but in my romantic relationships. I wasn't really present. I didn't really have an intention of where we were going in the relationship. I was sitting in the back seat, looking out the window, daydreaming about something I didn't have as a means of keeping my heart guarded because that way, if the car crashed and the relationship failed, I had plausible deniability of fault and I could save myself the true pain of heartbreak, the pain that exists when we truly open up ourselves and lean into vulnerability. See, it was in that moment I realized that love can only exist within the possibility of pain. I would have to give my heart to someone else if I wanted to feel the romantic love I desired. That meant actually giving enough of myself to risk getting hurt. Fuck. Right. <laughs> so, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. And besides, I think I've made this point kind of clear. Psychedelics could be an avenue to look past your emotional blockages and provide the perspective necessary to fall in love or foster love in the self. Basically, just seeing past those blind spots we seem to have when it comes to ourselves, especially those blind spots we have in romantic endeavors. Okay, so I'm 18 and I've established my pillars for a successful psychedelic experience, but I don't take psychedelics often. Not really. Not unless I'm called to them, so to speak. And one random Sunday in my first year of university, a voice appears in my mind, but it's not my usual narrative voice. You know, we all have that narrative voice sometimes referred to as the monkey mind by monks. I just think of it as myself at this point in my life. But it's challenged by this new voice, except this one seems weird. And it tells me, do some acid. Do some acid. Do some acid. I know, what the hell? It's Sunday. It's almost 1 p.m. Where did that come from? But again, this voice of sorts begs the question. Again, do some acid. So I surrender and I text the person I think might have some. And they do. And now I have it. At this point, I'm used to forests and natures, or at least having some company when it comes to psychedelic adventures. So best believe when that newfound intuition asks me to do it alone, do it alone. I have my reservations. But look, I just trusted this newfound gut voice. I really don't know why, but I did. And I placed the tab on my tongue. I placed myself on my bed and I fell into the sounds of my playlist. Acid didn't quite have the emotional tone of mushrooms, but the introspective take I took to the experience felt like my mind was turning inside into itself, and suddenly I felt gifted. I felt like I had found secrets. Somehow all the passive knowledge I had been reading about in the works of Eckhart Tolle or the philosophies of Plato and the lectures in my humanities course became coherent. They were condensed tidbits and I wrote them down on a scratch of paper and suddenly I felt special. This was actually the worst, best thing that ever came from psychedelics for me. Instead of the emotional undertones and realizations of self, 
suddenly I had a very object-based experience, specifically the objects of mind, information, knowledge. And it came with consequences because suddenly I became hyper-focused on the external world around me instead of on the inner work that mushrooms had often called of me and asked of me. So for the next year, instead of focusing on myself, I became an annoying critic of the world around me who stopped diving into the work of self and instead became the critic of the world. I became entrenched in feminist politics, you know, provided to me by my woman's studies course. Terms like class and intersectionality were now part of my daily vocabulary. And I had a bone to pick with the everybody else's ego that I now seem so good at recognizing, but somehow I missed my own. Essentially, I started to focus on everybody else and not me. This is the experience I now refer to as accessing the spiritual ego. A process by which your sense of self, your reality grounding principle, your ego, becomes identified with the spiritual realm and ideas. I talk about this process a lot now in podcasts and in my online content because it's a pernicious process that hides the ego in a clever, conniving manner, making it much harder to see your own faults and instead you project them onto the world and everybody else around you. I, I wouldn't blame Acid for this as Clearly, I already had a pernicious ego, a clever creature of sorts. However, somehow the disembodied intellectual acid experience acted as the necessary catalyst to go through this unfortunate part of the awakening process. <laughs> to put it in terms I've now come to understand, essentially, a spiritual awakening is a slow unfolding process, often with markedly fast moments of acceleration. Often, these fast moments of acceleration are brought about by psychedelics. However, when your ego has not been humbled and taken a backseat as it does after years of meditative practice, it's still very much in control. And the moment that a cataclysmic moment of change, like taking acid in your room and turning inwards, begins to threaten the identity of your ego, of yourself, of, of your perceived self, well, your ego as a means of protecting itself, it inflates. It inflates so large that, that it can now hold the new spiritual ideas of soul and spirit that threatened it to the point that now your ego can convince you that it is your soul and spirit, that you are no longer a slave to your ego, that you're free. What a joke. You haven't done the work and now you're, now you're just the fool preaching soul while living in his ego. I was that fool. <laughs> Sitting in the awareness of the present, it's easy for me to say I don't regret any of the experiences as they left me here, a moment for which I'm eternally grateful to sit in. From this perspective, I see that it was a necessary, you know, a necessary consequence to become the ego-bound critic so that I could suffer and these consequences of feeling alienated, becoming addicted to vices, drugs, hurting the people I wanted to love, in a slow unfolding process, I was eventually able to use meditation over the subsequent years to give me the space necessary to recognize the gravity of my mistaken mindset. See, I had eventually become depressed, hyper-anxious, dependent on weed just to function day to day, and I was halfway through a degree I didn't give a shit about. But the true awakening from that slumber of misery came when my best friend Khalil had a psychotic break and I saw what could happen to a mind that was overexposed and underdeveloped. See, Ram Dass, a spiritual teacher and modern mystic, once touched upon this unfortunate reality. If your mind is poisoned, underdeveloped, or simply you are not 
ready because you have not done any true inner work on yourself and then you jump into the realm of God, you may leave that place insisting, I am God. And when the wise monk says, yes, we are, the ego that never let go and instead overinflated in this haphazard attempt to save itself responds, no, you're not. I'm God. And that right there is the unfortunate risk of psychedelics to the underdeveloped mind. The ego cannot rationalize spiritual truth because it's beyond the realm of reason. So when you hold on to your ego in these altered states of consciousness, what you bring back is a distorted and often harmful interpretation of truth. Luckily, the love I had for Khalil made it easy for me to wake up from that awful life I was living and I was compelled to the call of the present moment. I transferred to psychology from business. I began making art and music again. I became more disciplined with my physical health and my meditative practice. I believed that if I could work on myself, I may be able to save Khalil and pull him out of the fog of psychosis. However, this sudden change in my own habits, specifically, I stopped taking MDMA cold turkey, induced a withdrawal, which then triggered a psychotic episode in me. Now, I wasn't as sick as maybe my friend was who, you know, for privacy reasons, I won't go into the depth of his mental illness, but I was convinced that the CIA bugged my phone and that if I left the site of my girlfriend, I would be kidnapped and killed and they would claim I killed myself. They would pull some Epstein shit. Yeah. Sitting in that silent turmoil of the mind provided me some of the greatest lessons I would ever carry with me for the rest of my life. I would come to understand that the true gravity and power of the mind to shape one's reality for better or worse. Thankfully, two years after that voice had compelled me to do acid, it suddenly appeared in the midst of the psychosis. As I walked out of the university library one fateful night, the voice suddenly told me to turn around. Turn around, grab that book. Grab that book, you'll need it. My girlfriend didn't even question the sudden random action as I turned around, grabbed a book that I didn't even have time to read the cover of, and said, oh, I need this. At that point of my insanity, that was the least of her worries. Now, I'm not here to convert anyone to any religion. God knows they're all wrong and right, depending on how you think about them. But in that voice that I heard, there was God. God's wisdom, God's love, because when we arrived back at my girlfriend's house, I finally took the time to look at this random book for the first time, and I read the cover. It was titled something along the lines of Resolving Intrapsychic Conflict, A Therapist's Guide. Look, it was a long time ago. I don't exactly remember. Everything was a little fuzzy, but the book outlined exactly what was happening demonstrating and talking about how humans are beings that can only act and exist through beliefs and meanings. Basic ones arise when we're young, right? Things like understanding physical concepts like gravity, like if I am to drop a pen, it will fall, you know, because of gravity. And that becomes a part of your, your like beings, belief systems, and it helps us navigate in the world. And as you develop, these beliefs and stuff become less obvious and more complex. Things like now... For, that I was holding was like, I am a good son, but that would stand in direct opposition to my values of truth and honesty, given the fact that I was lying to my parents. And I had a list of other psychic conflicts that had arisen from beliefs about myself and the world that were in direct opposition to one another. And these created psychic tension, 
And the MDA, the MDMA withdrawal triggered these conflicts to rise to the surface and they manifested in fear and paranoia, stemming from a feeling that I was not safe. I cured myself of the psychosis by confronting each conflicting set of beliefs, starting with my obvious paranoias, like believing I was going to be kidnapped if I left the safety of my girlfriend's presence. It's funny now in reflection, but the gripping fear that consumed me at that time is something I don't wish upon anybody. It was suffocating. It hurt me. It hurt my girlfriend and the person I loved the most. And anyways, as I stood outside bare feet in the snow that night, after I finished the book back to back twice, I finally let out a sigh of relief because I stood out there to test whether or not I would get kidnapped. Uh, spoiler alert, I did not get kidnapped by the CIA. And I finally let out that big sigh of relief. <sighs> and it was the first chains of crazy that were lifted from my mind. The following few days consisted of me tackling and confronting each irrational and conflicting set of beliefs until finally the last one stood. The tension of believing I was a good son that stood in contrast to the lies I'd been telling my parents. I finally sat before them and I confessed. I confessed everything I had done and was doing that was in stark contrast to the image I had presented. It broke their heart. How poetic now it seems as the biggest burden of all was lifted from my shoulders. I had now placed the biggest burden on my parents with the flawed truth of who I'd become. I thought, damn, those Christians were right. Confession does work and it feels great. I just wish I told a priest instead. <laughs> I wanted to bring up that short-lived dance with insanity because it's what gave me the compassion to know that my best friend who's dealing with something far worse but in the same nature just needed someone to listen to his fears, his conflicting beliefs, and perhaps provide some guidance to confront the inconsistencies, to get better. Obviously, I could never understand the gravity of experiences, but I could at least not call him crazy, and instead I could give him a safe space to voice his experiences. Unfortunately, he never found enough solace in himself, nor could my conversations with him save him, as I desperately believed they could, and he overdosed that summer. I would never see him again. I continued in my search for truth through psychedelics, and the more I learned, the more I knew I had let my best friend down. When he told me he was the prophet, I shouldn't have punched him. I wish I could have just told him that of course he was. We all were. That the kingdom of heaven was an analogous understanding of the world we could create if all of us on earth lived through the embodiment of love as those historical prophets like Jesus once had. I wish I had had the wisdom to provide loving space for his mind that was simply an underdeveloped intellect attempting to understand what he had experienced in altered states of consciousness. I say underdeveloped in the sense that, look, if one is to jump into the realm of psychedelics, it's best that you aren't abusing harmful methamphetamines and that one perhaps has some solid philosophical frameworks for understanding the universe and the world around you. Whether that be a Buddhist or Christian or esoteric or scientific framework likely isn't that important, but you should have some grounding to your life because if you feel lost, alienated, and are exposing your brain to harmful substances, and then you seek an escape in overwhelming powers of altered states of consciousness brought about by psychedelic plants, you know, it's a recipe for a disaster. You know, 
the psychic overdose is well documented and it is one that can bring about psychosis and even ultimately death as an escape from the suffering of the psychosis. My best friend's death, however, was perhaps the best thing that ever happened to me. A recognition that to live is to risk it all was never more apparent. And suddenly caring about how I was perceived if I were to chase my dreams became a silly afterthought. You could die. So who gives a shit what they may or may not think? I was free. It was as if his death gave me the permission to live. If not for me, then for him. To honor him. To honor our shared dreams of living through our music and our art. It was just not a question anymore. It was the only way to live. And look, my life continued. The journey was never stable or always one of growth, but I wasn't stagnant anymore. I was moving, whether that was pursuing a career in the arts or challenging myself by always educating myself on the psychological literature I was so passionate about. I had a newfound sense of purpose, a purpose that had arisen directly from my experiences, not just with psychedelic experiences, but also with the suffering of losing my best friend and fellow psychonaut. The purpose is actually what I wrote down on a piece of paper when I was 18 years old and did acid in my university dorm room. And I wrote, I am here to help raise the collective consciousness. It looks like my subconscious just latched onto the idea that I'd obviously read in Eckhart Tolle's book, A New Earth, Awakening to Your Life's Purpose. However, even that narrative can become twisted. It became twisted when I was 18 and I spent a year thinking that my purpose of raising the collective consciousness meant I had to run around telling everybody that they were complicit in an evil capitalist system that oppresses everybody and that they were sheep for not thinking how I thought they should think. <laughs> yeah, the irony is not lost on me. Luckily, I did find some great intellectual leaders and powerful insight into the greatest way the youth can help the world by first helping themselves. I really did let go of blame and have spent the better part of the last five years trying to develop my intellect, physical body, spiritual understanding through the religious, psychological, and philosophical frameworks that strike, that strike passion in me. I also gained priceless experiential knowledge of self and spirit through psychedelic plant medicines, specifically psilocybin mushrooms. So from my personal experiences, it might appear that I'm obviously somebody who thinks these plants have a potential to positively and radically reshape our relationship to not just ourselves, but to others and the world at large. Perhaps these plants can provide that overwhelming sense of oneness and help push us past divisive narratives propagated by media corporations that benefit from keeping us miserable and feeling insufficient, always searching for something outside ourselves to fulfill us. Psychedelics can force us to confront our blockages our trauma, and recognize how we may be standing in the way of our own growth to help us recognize that healing is not only possible, but required. That suffering can be transformational. That we can imagine a different way of living and through, crea and through creative collaboration, we can reimagine the world around us to serve our highest selves. Well, yes, I do believe in the potential of psychedelics to aid us in doing all of those things but I also see an overwhelmingly intelligent system that stands before us. The capitalist framework of which we belong to isn't evil, but its for-profit motives and its shady leaders are culpable in distorting what is a wonderful idea of free markets and trade, where we as a culture and people, aka the market, determine the worth of things through our individual actions. 
you know, it's a great idea. It's a beautiful sentiment that lobbying powers, dirty politics, and corporate greed have made inaccessible. As a result, I fear that psychedelics won't be the transformational shamanic tool for rediscovery and reimagining as they have been in my personal life. See, the twisted beauty of the system in which we are currently entrenched in is that it can, perpet it can perpetuate itself endlessly by absorbing whatever stands before it, especially anything that threatens its existence, by repurposing and selling it back to us consumers in a modicum that benefits the present system. See, I already see this happening before me. Instead of psilocybin mushrooms being spoken about for what they are, a plant life consciousness endowed with intelligence of which we can be the grateful beneficiaries, they are being instead spoken to us as a replacement to SSRIs to treat depression or as a potential productivity booster to help increase our, effic our efficiency in the workplace. The very systems that mushrooms can radically reform are already beginning to reduce this fantastic fungi to a capitalistic work booster. Nothing more than a tool to help increase profits and keep us mellow enough not to question the direction we're headed to as a species. See, the thing about psychedelics is their true power comes in revealing. Whether that's revealing ourselves, our potential, our work to be done, revealing re reality for what it is, what it could be beyond the imagined and agreed upon constructs of our current dogmatic societies, the power of psychedelics comes from a wisdom that's beyond our material world. It makes the religious ideals obvious. Of course we create heaven by embodying Christ. Of course the world of duality is a man-made construct born of our human language. Of course my desires are the root of my suffering, because there was only ecstasy when my sense of I dissipated. Of course we feel alienated, disconnected from one another. Of course we see a rise in suicides and mental health afflictions. Of course we see a growing culture war based on false division. Of course we do, because that is how this world is designed, if not on purpose, then by a blind ignorance. And the people who benefit from the status quo have no intention of changing a damn thing. Unfortunately, our world has become afflicted with a false sense of separation. Of course, I believe that if individuals around the world, especially those in power, were to have mystical experiences brought about by psychedelic plants that give them the overwhelming sense of oneness, that dissolve the dogmatic frameworks of thought they are currently entrenched in, we could change the world for the better. But I don't know if that's what's going to happen. Instead, I do fear that psychedelic substances will be seen as just another consumer good to, to turn a quick buck, marketed towards productivity and surface-level mental health benefits. See, I believe the true power of the psychedelic experience lies not in the microdose, but in the macrodose. The dose that actually pulls back the curtain of ego and reveals the soul to the self, the ones that force us to reconcile and wrestle with what we once believed was set in stone, but now seems so self-evidently illusory? Yeah, those types of experiences. These types of psychedelic experience may become relegated to hippies and outsiders of culture and society. And if that happens, well, then the power of psychedelics to radically transform our society will also be relegated to the outskirts. I think I'm not technically allowed to advocate people use illicit substances, but I think I've made it pretty clear where I stand with psychedelics the role they've played in my own life, the true risks of overexposure and underdevelopment, and the potential for radical world change only 
if the capitalist system doesn't simply regurgitate a bullshit consumer product devoid of its true power. Thank you for tuning in. I know your time is precious and I'm honored to share it with you. Please give the podcast five stars and follow us to stay updated. We look forward to seeing you here now next time for Where's the Nuance?